says verse 19, Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derb. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, now, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work to which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And Father, we just humbly ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would help us now to continue in our worship as we open the word of God together. We pray that you'd give us an ear to hear and a heart that wants to receive that which, Lord, we need for you to say to us this morning through this part of your word. We ask that your same Holy Spirit who inspired and recorded these things would now be the one who helps us understand and who would speak to us in personal ways how this applies to our lives so we ask, bless your word, Lord, give us expectant hearts and let us hear your voice individually, we ask. We pray together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, despite what people may be sort of vainly looking for, maybe even what you may to some degree be searching for, I'm sorry to inform you there is no such thing as heaven on earth. It just doesn't exist. There is no special land of Oz. There is no place that you're going to find paradise to the degree you're looking for. Indeed, there is no heaven on earth. I can tell you this is true. There are indeed hardships on earth. There are going to be difficulties and challenges and pressures that we face. We are going to go through our journey on this earth at times confronted by different personal hardships. But heaven is the glorious reward for those who faithfully follow Jesus Christ as his servant and endure through the hardships as they journey through this earth, longing ultimately to be in the presence of their Lord after their time here is over. And this is really what our text to some degree reveals to us, that God's at work and God is working even in the midst of personal hardships. However, the Bible says these present sufferings on earth are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be one day revealed in us. That one day there's something coming that far outweighs. And in fact, to some degree, we find, is it not true, the pressures that we endure, the trials that we go through, the hardships, the sorrows, the grief, the difficulties, the struggles, in some way they make us actually appreciate the kingdom of God all the more. In some ways, is it not true that it's the hardships, difficulties, challenges, and stresses that actually make us to some degree really long for and look forward to going to heaven? 
because this earth doesn't provide anything like that. And it's what attaches our heart in some ways to a greater degree. The background, remember, as we come to our verses here in Acts chapter 14, the Lord has been doing powerful things through Paul and Barnabas as we've watched them on this first of a few different missionary trips that they will take. Many people have gotten saved, have become followers of the Lord Jesus, but there has also been, together with many lives transformed, many obstacles. There's been a lot of spiritual opposition. There's been difficulties they've had to go through. They've been persecuted. They've been expelled from cities because of their ministry. In fact, most recently in Lystra, they were there. We saw preaching the gospel. And as they were there doing that, the power of God moved in an incredible way. And a man actually was healed miraculously from his paralyzed condition. And remember, the people were so astonished at this miracle of healing that took place. It tells us they actually believed that Paul and Barnabas were the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, who had come down to them to earth in the likeness of men and they actually started trying to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas and actually were making an effort to worship them as gods and Paul we saw had to strongly refute this worship and say look we are just mere men just like you what are you doing and then he pointed them to the one they should be worshiping and he said you need to turn from the useless things of idols and turn to your creator who gave you breath and life and has taken such good care of you even though you've ignored and rejected him thus far yet he's made a provision by sending his son Jesus Christ to be the savior for mankind's sin in fact look back with me in verse 18 that's why we read there before our verses today that with these sayings they could scarcely now remember this for our text today they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them now with that backdrop verse 19 goes on to say and then the jews from antioch and iconium came there now the Jews from Antioch and Iconium referenced in verse 19 is describing those who had chose to reject the gospel, who refused Jesus Christ back in those particular cities when Paul and Barnabas were ministering there, and those who strongly then persecuted Paul and Barnabas for the gospel message they were preaching. Those in Antioch, we read in chapter 13, Verse 45, that the Jews there, seeing the multitudes coming to Christ, were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Verse 50 of chapter 13 says, and then they raised up or stirred up devout and prominent individuals to raise up a persecution and expel them from the region. So these were those, the religious leaders and those who did not want to receive Jesus Christ. Some of the Jews and Gentiles in the communities would. These were those who chose to reject Christ. And as a result, they had great animosity towards Paul and Barnabas, pushing them out of their community. And then in Iconium, Paul experienced much the same. There we saw in Acts chapter 14, verse 2, it says the, again, unbelieving Jews, those who didn't want to be saved, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And then in verse 5, again, we saw last week, they actually started to raise up a violent attempt, it says, to abuse and to actually stone them to death. And Paul and Barnabas, being aware of this, had to escape before they were murdered by the people. So these hateful, if you would, sort of anti-Christian persecutors against Paul and Barnabas are now hunting Paul and Barnabas down. In fact, 
It says they now travel the 80 plus miles on foot to Iconium. That's where Paul is at this point. They travel 80 plus miles hunting them down to where he's now ministering to further attack and resist him. So it says they come there and verse 19, it says, having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So when these enemies of Christianity arrive there, they manage to convince the multitudes in Iconium now, where Paul has been ministering, where great things have been happening. They persuade the multitudes by what things they're saying, no doubt critically, uh, you know, maligning Paul's character, kind of trying to convince the people that they should actually attack and murder Paul for the things that he's saying in the ministry that he's doing. They manage to say enough false and critical things to persuade the people that Paul is actually like a, a dangerous individual. And we actually need to get rid of this guy. I mean, he's actually a danger to society and he's someone who should be expelled and gotten rid of. In fact, it tells us they persuade the people. Notice to actually, verse 19 tells us to actually execute Paul. It says there, verse 19, look at it in the text. It says they stoned Paul and left him for dead. Now, keep in mind, stoning someone was an extremely painful form of public execution. It wasn't just a quick, you know, one shot and you're gone. To stone someone to death as an execution, they would encircle the person who was the guilty victim. Sometimes they would put them down below a little bit into a pit, and then they would literally just continue to pick up rocks and pelt the person over and over again with contusion and, you know, wound after wound, hitting them with rocks until it actually killed them. So I just, I mean, I can't even begin, try to imagine what that must be like to experience, to be stoned, actually, repeatedly until it brings you to the point of death. And talk about how disgraceful they actually viewed Paul in their mind as a person. Do you see what the end of verse 19 says? After they stoned him, it says they dragged his corpse if you would out of the city just supposing him to be dead so no dignified burial they, they stone him to death and then they take his lifeless corpse out of town they just drag him out of town bloodied and all you know busted up to the edge of town and they just leave his corpse out there for animals to devour in this bloodied probably unconscious state severely wounded thinking that he's actually dead because he's been injured so badly now i look at that and by way of application let me say this is it not amazing how difficult and hard simply dealing with people on this earth is i mean you want to talk about hardships how hard is it just dealing sometimes with people alone consider what's taking place even in our text here first of all this reveals to us very clearly that people are incredibly fickle and if you don't know what the word fickle means, let me make sure I clarify. Fickle refers to a person who changes frequently in their loyalties and their affections, in the things that they you know, have interest in. They're a person who doesn't stay consistent. They love a person one day and then the next day they, they could care less about the person. Or they're the greatest fan of somebody one day and then after the Eagles game, they hate the Eagles the next day, right? I mean, that's, that's just, we can all relate to that, right? To some degree, Eagles fans are very fickle. But that's a fickle person. Remember, if you would, the scene before, the scene before when the man got healed, 
What did this crowd and multitude of people want to do? They wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. They were trying to sacrifice them saying, you are gods, the gods are among us. So the day before, Paul and Barnabas are gods and they want to worship them. And now the very next day, they change their minds. They see him as a vile criminal and they actually stone him to death and drag his corpse out to the edge of town. They went from loving him to wanting nothing to do with him for no good reason. They went with being completely dedicated to him, treating him really well to the next day, treating him horribly in a very hurtful way. And I bring that up because honestly, I am certain this morning in this room, perhaps you have been before the victim of someone who's treated you in a very fickle way, some relationship, some friendship, maybe even a marriage relationship or a parent-child relationship where someone changed in their loyalty so quickly. And, and one day they were so dedicated and so devoted and then seemingly for no real valid or good reason, they, they just changed their loyalty. And, and in a fickle way, they just completely turn away. And, and that's a very difficult thing when you go through that where all of a sudden you're so very important to somebody in a relationship and then all of a sudden you, you find yourself kind of bewildered going, what happened? How is it I was so important to this person and now I'm, I'm seemingly just worthless and insignificant? That's a hard thing to endure when people treat us in a fickle way. Let me encourage you, if you've experienced that, talk to God. Because God understands what it's like to deal with fickle people. Because every one of us in this room is rather fickle with God sometimes. And God understands. And God can help you process that. Take notice as well as we look at this, people also, would you agree by what they do to Paul here, can be incredibly cruel and hurtful in how they treat us, even when we're doing what's good. Paul didn't do anything wrong. Here's a God-fearing man. He's showing people how to know the Lord. He's going about doing good. I mean, he's helping people. He's making sacrifices of his life to make the lives of other people better. He's serving the Lord's purpose. And what does he get as a result? People being critical and beyond being critical, they actually end up doing things to just hurtfully damage and worse than that, even try and destroy his entire life. And again, perhaps you have been the victim of some pretty cruel treatment in your life. Maybe in this room you have you know, a, a testimony, a story of whether it was your upbringing or even potentially abuse or something that's happened to you where somebody in your life has done some very hurtful, cruel, damaging things to you. Listen, I know that's very painful, but I want you to know that the Lord can heal that and more than that, the Lord understands that. The Bible speaks of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ which means when we go through those kind of things, we can go to Jesus. And in some way, you and I, through those processes, we understand just a little bit more to a greater degree what our Lord Jesus experienced. Because Jesus did nothing but go about doing good, loving, helping, and serving people. And he was treated horribly cruel. And he knows what the experience is like. And so therefore he can help us to process that. Lord, is this what it's like? And Lord, how do you overcome this? And how do you heal from this? Jesus knows he can actually sympathize better than any other human being. And you can go to him in the midst of those things. In some ways you understand what your Lord went through and he can help you in the process. So they stone Paul, drag his body out to the edge of the city thinking that he's dead. It then goes on verse 20 to say, however, and I love this, 
Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. <clears throat> and the next day, it says, he then departed with Barnabas to Derb. So I like this. Out of love for Paul, look what happens here. This event happens to him, and out of love for him, the disciples of the Lord, fellow believers, they gather around him in his wounded condition. Perhaps they're expressing their sorrow as they're looking over his body, which everyone's supposing in his unconscious, bloodied, battered state that he's dead. Maybe they're expressing concern. Maybe they're eving to the best of their ability and faith, praying maybe for a miraculous healing, for a recovery. And then all of a sudden, Paul starts to twitch. All of a sudden, they can tell he's starting to recover somehow. And the power of the Lord helps him in such a way whereby it says he actually rises up. He actually gets up after that experience, stands to his feet, and despite the horrible treatment and abuse that he endured, the power of the Lord comes into Paul's life and begins to strengthen and restore and revive and renew him. And what a beautiful scene here. Consider it, verse 20. The disciples of the Lord lovingly gathering around a severely hurting believer. Someone whose life has been just railroaded recently. And here are these loving fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and they rally around and what happens as a result? The Lord raises that wounded, destroyed, downtrodden believer back up. And because the body of Christ rallies around, a few brothers and sisters come around, they're revived and they're renewed to carry on. What a wonderful picture that can happen among us in similar ways as well. When someone, let's say, is in a really bad place and maybe they're hurting or they've recently been wounded or they've gone through some real hardships and they are just beat up and downtrodden and worn out from life's difficulties and hardships or maybe the devil has just severely just really attacked them and they are hanging on by a limb, halfway dead just hanging on by a limb day by day in the current state of difficulty they are in. And then all of a sudden, the family of God rallies around them and comes around them in the midst of that and says, we have got to rally around that brother. We've got to rally around that sister and, and do what we can to support them or to comfort them or to pray them through this and stand with them during these times. And that process of the believers gathering around and praying and comforting and supporting them, it starts to revive the person. And it starts to bring them out of that condition. It starts to restore them. And they're able to kind of raise back up like Paul and keep going and stay on in their journey. You know, perhaps you've experienced that. I know there's been a time or two in my life where I've been the benefit of that, where maybe you've been in that spot. And it was the people that gathered around you that spared you and, and just kept you going. Or maybe perhaps there is at times wisdom in being more sensitive to take notice when you should be one of the people who gathers around someone else. Maybe out of your own personal hardships and difficulties, by the grace of God, you should have a little more sensitivity and compassion to be sympathetic that now you know because you've been there to when you see somebody else in that spot that you, you gravitate towards them. You know, the Bible tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I read that verse years ago, and to me, that was like the simplest, clearest explanation that when somebody is heartbroken, somebody goes through you know, the death of a loved one or whatever, 
I need to go be near that person. I need to give attention, extra time. I need to invest and be around them as much as possible because that's where Jesus is. The Bible says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So Lord, you're a part of my life. You dwell in me by your spirit. So Lord, that's, it's not complicated for me. When somebody's hurting, I know what you want me to do. You just want me to go position myself near them, to just be with them and just bring the presence of Christ. It's not about what we say, but it's just the love, the presence, the support that, that matters so hugely. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 12, being united as one body, we should care for one another. And if one member suffers, we all should suffer with it. That we should not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but grieve with those who grieve. And what a good reminder here in this picture here with Paul and the disciples of how we ought to as well today in our generation do the same kind of thing as the body of Christ for one another. Rally around, be with those who are down and who've been hurt and wounded and gone through hardship. So Paul, he rises back up and talk about this guy. Look what he does in verse 20 there. It says he rises back up and he went back into the city where they just stoned him. And then the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derb. The idea is he departs the next day on God's terms, not their terms. He didn't let them run him out of town. Like, when God wants me to move on, then I'm going to move on. And he did move on, by chance, by the way. Don't, please don't overlook that. It's probably a good idea when they've stoned you to not stick around for a long time and keep ministering. But Paul left on God's terms the next day. Can you imagine? I just have to, as I read the word, can you imagine really the looks on people's faces as here comes Paul, and again, he's all busted up and he's limping back into town. And here he comes limping back into town after that abuse. And I just have to wonder if the people were like shaking their heads in disbelief, just looking at Paul and thinking to themselves, this guy must think his message is really important that he's coming back into this town after that. You know, it reminds me of, if you are a fan or have seen the Rocky movies, it reminds me of the Rocky movie when he fought the Russian. And remember, I mean, that's the movie of all movies where he just gets pulverized. I mean, the guy's like Goliath, it's like a Goliath and David situation, right? And Rocky is just beat to the pulp by this Russian and he just kept staying at it. And remember, there's that scene where and then he comes kind of like walking back out for another round. And the, the Russian guy who's been beating his brains in just looks at him. He's just kind of like, he's just like shocked. He's bewildered. He's like, are you kidding me? Like, you, you, you're you going to come back again? And, and, I, and I love Rocky's line of all his lines. One more round. One more round. You know, and I look at Paul the Apostle and I think, you know what? Paul the Apostle kind of had that like, temperament that tenacity that spiritual grit and i like that because a lot of christians are spiritual cream puffs they really are oh i oh i can't find two socks to match i can't go to church oh, i can't wear black and blue i guess i'll just stay home today you know or we're supposed to be committed to serve in some way or do something we get a hangnail oh i guess i'm not going to be able to do ministry today i got a hangnail i, I mean really and I love the pictures in the word of God at times like this of the tenacity. Like, again, the Bible says we're to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, enduring hardship. And I love this picture of Paul here, not driven by, by fear. He's led by the spirit of the Lord. And so he goes back into town again, desires to be faithful. I mean, he doesn't even take time to heal up, to recuperate. It just says the next day he departs heads back out over to Derb with Barnabas and look, verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city 
and made many disciples. So Paul just gets right back at it. And I'll tell you something. Sometimes when life beats you up, there's something very therapeutic sometimes about not sitting around kind of licking your wounds and self-pity and just getting back at it and just continuing on and staying productive and one of the most helpful things so many times. So once again, they come now, it says verse 21, to a new area, preach the gospel. And it says again, made many disciples. So they share the gospel of Christ again in another new city. More people get saved and not only saved, but notice they progress spiritually because notice verse 21 in the text, it says they made many disciples. I like that. They made many disciples. Remember, a disciple we've talked about before is a term to describe a committed follower, a a disciplined learner who wants to know and thereby follow the ways of a master. That's what a disciple is. And in the book of Acts, which gives us a record of the early church, the most commonly used title for Christians, believers, followers of Jesus is disciples, disciples of the Lord that they were people who were committed, devoted followers who wanted to know the ways of their master, Jesus, and live in his ways. That's the most commonly used title to refer to them. And so I like this. As Paul goes into the community, he preaches the gospel and it says, and they made, preaching the gospel, they then made many disciples. That tells me that Paul didn't want to just get professions of faith. Paul didn't even just want to get just spiritual converts, that is, people to genuinely get saved. Paul desired, above all else, to see people become genuine followers of Jesus Christ, those who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who continued on to be fruitful, effective servants of the Lord. He wanted to see people become committed to learning the ways of Jesus and actually living their lives for Jesus actually being stable, fruitful followers of Christ to observe and live out the ways of the Lord. Perhaps he remembered the words of Jesus who Matthew 28 in his commission, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say converts, he could have. And, and certainly that's implied that we should see people be converted to Christ, but he said, go and make disciples of all nations, committed followers, baptizing them and teaching them how to observe what I commanded you. Again, I even love the language that it tells us there in the text that disciples are made. It says they made disciples. To me, I find that insightful. I have it underlined because, look, disciples aren't just automatic. When people get converted and they accept Jesus Christ and they're genuinely saved, they don't immediately automatically become disciples. For people to become disciples, that, that's, that's the cultivation of a believer's life. That's a process of training and developing. It is much more difficult to make disciples of followers of the Lord. It is much more of a process. It's a ministry process with a lot of investment. And as well, on a personal level, it is much more difficult and challenging to live as a disciple of Christ. To say I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, well, I mean, that's good, but it's not too hard. Well, I believe Christ. I mean, you can believe upon Christ and kind of be a secret disciple like Nicodemus, the Bible says, was. But, but to really be a disciple of Jesus, where you say, I live for Jesus as Lord. I follow his ways. He's my master, and I live in a diligent way for him. Much more challenging, would you agree, 
to be a disciple of the Lord. But that's God's ideal for us. Now, verse 21 goes on to tell us, as they made disciples there, they then returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening excuse me, the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they then commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and his missions team, they now return, as the text describes here, to the different cities and churches they had planted. I believe in these verses demonstrating for us here what it actually takes to make disciples. And I think there are some things to observe. They made disciples. These verses almost expound upon what it takes to make disciples. Notice the first thing they did, we see there in verse 21, is they retraced their steps backward, as I said, to the exact same cities where they had planted churches previously. It says there at the end of verse 21, they returned back to Lystra and then to Iconium and then to Antioch. The purpose of the return to those locations was for follow-up ministry. It was for further development in the lives of these new believers that got saved in these cities. And yet, what's not immediately revealed or obvious just on the cursory reading of the text there, you almost need a Bible map to take note of it, what's not completely evident in the cursory reading of the text is the extent of sacrifice it took for these men to retrace their steps back to all these other locations. See, if you have a Bible map, don't do it now, but you can look at it later in the back of your Bible or online, where Paul was at at this point, him and his team, they could have just went shortly east across land over to Tarsus, and then from Tarsus just took a quick trip, a short voyage across the Mediterranean Sea, and they would have been right back home where they took off from. But instead, they actually go back northwest, They go back away from home. And again, so instead of just going a short way like this, they go all the way back north and west to all these other locations, circle back around down below, and then going hundreds of miles against rough terrain again, and then take this long journey back across the Mediterranean Sea to ultimately get back home to where they needed to be. Again, that greatly extended their travel time. It greatly extended, no doubt, their personal difficulty. This was rugged terrain they had to travel through in the region of Galatia. It was hard sailing across the Mediterranean Sea on long voyages. Yet that was the sacrifice Paul and his team were willing to make to invest in spiritual development. That was the sacrifice they saw had value. And it reminds us, Paul does here, there are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. There are no shortcuts to spiritual development in other people. There needs to be, like Paul and Barnabas show here, repeated, continuous, constant, routine investments in people again and again and again and infinitum to see people begin to develop and grow and mature. But see, that's what discipleship is it's the willingness to say i'll make the personal sacrifices of my time and my energy and inconvenience myself and do what it takes to be able to invest repeatedly in a person to help them develop spiritually and that's what paul and his team are doing here is they make this backtrack all these locations 
Secondly, notice as well that they equipped the people who had accepted Christ to become stronger in the Lord by equipping them. It says there as well in verse 22, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. That is through further ministry of teaching the word of God, of counseling them, of praying together with them. They helped them grow stronger spiritually so that they would be more healthy in their relationship with God. They were helping the people, kind of almost like a spiritual coach, right? The spiritual coach, like a regular coach, they want to, a coach wants to help a player be more effective, to be more fit physically, to be more healthy, to be stronger, to participate and succeed better on the field. Well, that's the idea. Like a spiritual coach, that's kind of like what discipleship is, that you invest in someone in such a way that you help them be stronger in the things of the Lord. You help strengthen their soul. And we need to realize there's an important part in the goal of discipleship of trying to strengthen people spiritually. Whether you're trying to disciple your children, whether you're trying to help disciple another believer or ministering to a Bible study, that's a part of the process. What can I do to help them be stronger spiritually, to be more healthy in the condition of their soul? Notice as well, thirdly, we see in verse 21 that they also provided encouragement to them spiritually. Comes in a unique way, but you see what verse, uh, excuse me, 22 says? It says they were exhorting the believers to continue in the faith, saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So they're exhorting, which is a word which means to charge or to inspire someone to action. Teaching is telling somebody what to do. Exhortation is saying, now go for it. Get moving. Stay at it. Don't give up. Launch into that. So they're encouraging them to stay on track, to continue in the faith, to not turn off course or follow other ideas. It was great that they had come to Christ, but Paul said, I want you to continue in Christ. I'm glad you prayed to receive Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, but you got to continue with Jesus now. You have to continue in the faith. You got to walk with him. You got to grow and keep progressing. He, he knew that it would be uh, necessary in their lives at times to be devoted because they were going to face things, as we all do, that would interfere with their spiritual lives sometimes. They'd be de dealing with things that were going to kind of try to distract them or push them off course. And a part of discipleship is like we see Paul here as well doing, is also encouraging people to continue in the things of the Lord. Because everybody needs that encouragement sometimes. Because those who know the Lord recognize that at times we all need a charge to kind of onward Christian soldier and to stay on track spiritually. Because people easily, all of us do, right? We get distracted. And so things happen. We get distracted spiritually. We need somebody to encourage us. Hey, man, you need to continue in the Lord. You're getting distracted. What are you doing? And to encourage them to get back on track. Sometimes we, we get discouraged or, or we just wander, right? We get off track. We start to deviate into sin or we get a little kind of cold towards the things of the Lord. And we need somebody to come along and exhort us. Yo, what are you doing? You need to get back in the word of God, man. You need to start reading your Bible again. You need to get back into the house of the Lord. What, what's this? You're not a church anymore. You need to get back to the things of the Lord. Or you need to get back serving the Lord again. You, you're, you're squandering your gifts. What are you doing? And so sometimes we need that exhortation as believers and the Lord wants us to use us to do that and important to even speak the hard truth about the reality of life sometimes. I mean, take notice what they said to them there in verse 22. They said to them, we must through many tribulations 
enter the kingdom of God. Now, contrary to what false teachers said in that day, and many still today on the television at times today, it is not true or biblically accurate that life should be painless and problem-free if you just have enough faith. And if you just smile, the victory will be yours. That's not true. The reality is, it's nothing to do with how much faith you have or whether... The reality is, life's hard. This is a fallen world. He says here, on the road to the kingdom of God, he says, we're going to have to pass through, journey through, endure through many tribulations until we enter heaven. And Paul says, that's the truth. Let me help you as new converts, Paul's saying, because I'm going to have to depart from here. So this is my spiritual counsel. It's going to be really hard till you get to heaven. But heaven's on the other side, Paul's telling him. But he says, be aware there are going to be many tribulations along the way. That word tribulations, thalipsis in the Greek, is a word that spoke of crushing pressure. And so Paul's saying, look, you're going to go through some things that may even feel like at times that the pressure you're under is going to just crush you. You're going to go through hardships and, you know, tragedies and difficulties and challenges of all different sorts and varieties. Because again, we live in a fallen world that is under the curse of sin, so everything is infected by the the destructive nature of sin that's infected this world. And there are sinful people all around us, and so because of that, there are many forms in this life of hardship and difficulty. There are stresses and pressures, and, and we're not immune to those things just because we follow Jesus. The only difference is as we go through those things, we don't go through them alone. We lose loved ones, but Jesus walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We experience disease, but but in the midst of that, we have the peace of the Lord and the joy of the Lord that helps us to navigate it with our eyes on him. We may lose jobs or go through economic hardships or have family problems or tragedies, or but we go through those things with the Lord by our side, helping us, maintaining our perspective through him. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And Jesus gives us both that honest awareness, you're going to have tribulation, but he says, but take heart, you and I together, he says, we're going to overcome. And a helpful part of growing spiritually, honestly, is understanding sometimes the realities that are just honest and that you realize it's not about this life, heaven on earth. It's about navigating this earth with the Lord's help. And it's heaven that we look beyond to ultimately. Well, verse 23 tells us something else they did. It says that when they then appointed elders in every church, that is, they established spiritual leadership for these new congregations. The word elder in the Bible is basically a term that refers to a spiritually mature man who functions in the role of a spiritual leader as an overseer in the local church. The elder provides spiritual care through the teaching of the word of God and counsel and, and, and ministry to people and praying with people and for people. The elder provides oversight and leadership to protect God's flock and to help the flock of God stay on track and in the will of the Lord. And, and what's interesting, if you really consider it, remember these churches were fairly new works. I mean, the converts that they go back and visit They could maybe be a few months old in the Lord, maybe a year, but Paul and Barnabas, knowing that the sheep 
needed guidance and leadership to develop spiritually and to stay on track in the things of the Lord. They appointed elders in this unique situation, nonetheless, to operate in that function of spiritual leadership because they knew that was God's design for healthy believers and for a healthy church congregation. And I'll tell you, being under spiritual leadership is essential for spiritual development according to God's word. It's a necessary thing to stay rooted and healthy spiritually. These leaders also, it says there in verse 23, prayed together with them with fasting. So again, they're, they're praying with the believers to experience God's best, asking God's hand to be at work in their lives. And again, let me just say, because we often kind of get cliche as Christians, let us never, ever, ever devalue the benefit of the ministry of prayer. Whether it's praying together with somebody when they're in something difficult or just continuing to pray for somebody, how valuable that is to help believers stay the course. Because the world and our sinful flesh and the devil are constantly trying to crush us and tempt us to get off track and to, to dissuade us off the course and oppose our spiritual life. So it's important to routinely pray with people and pray for people so that they're empowered, so they can overcome the obstacles and challenges, so they'll be strengthened and they can be sustained. And I love ultimately how verse 23 concludes telling us after they prayed with them, they then just commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The picture there is they entrusted them to the Lord and said, look, ultimately, you need to rely upon the Lord whom you first believed in. And this was important because Paul knew they could not remain with them long term. So he kind of says, look, I've appointed some spiritual leaders. I've prayed with you. I've counseled you. I've taught you some more. But he says, look, ultimately, the same Lord who you believe for your salvation, you just keep relying on him and he'll finish the process of sanctification, which is spiritual growth and development and maturity. And, 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 and Paul was saying, look, most of all, look, we're leaving, but it's not about us. You just keep trusting Jesus because he's the head of the church and he is the chief shepherd and overseer of your soul. And Paul told the Philippians he was confident of one thing, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And how wonderful to know that because sometimes your ministry opportunity with somebody may come to a close. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say, you know what, at the end of the day, it's not about me anyway. Lord, you started the work in them. You can carry it on to completion. You're going to finish the job you began in that person's life. And to also realize as well, maybe somebody that was at one time investing or ministering in your life isn't doing it anymore. Listen, you don't need a person to stay strong spiritually. Be careful of that, thinking, oh, if I'm not attached to that person, I'll never make it spiritually. Well, with that mindset, yeah. But as long as you're attached to Jesus and you stay close to Jesus and you rely on Jesus, you'll be just fine because he's the one that's ultimately going to be the chief shepherd to lead you onward as you rely upon him. Well, verse 24 and 25 tell us they begin to journey back now, passing through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. They're looping back now. They then preached the word in Perga, a new territory that they didn't before. And then they went down to Italia. That's the seaport where they landed the first time they came across. And there from Italia, they now sail back across, it says, verse 26, they sailed from there to Antioch, back to Antioch, Syria, their home church, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work to which they had completed. So they ultimately come back to the city of Italia. 
They launch across the sea. They land back over in Antioch. Again, Antioch, Syria, that is. Long journey across the Mediterranean. And that was where they were commissioned and sent out of, at this point, 18 months ago. So it's quite a long missionary journey. They were 18 months out on the field, went through some intense, difficult experiences. However, God used them and kept them through it all. It says it was from there they had been commended, notice, to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. The idea there is indicating they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and then they were kept by the grace of God through the whole process, enabling them to complete what they ultimately did. It was by the grace of God supplied to them, they were able to do the work, they were able to stand strong in the midst of the hardships and the challenges and the difficulties. The point is they kept going by the grace of God that they were once commended to go out and do these things with. And what a wonderful thing the sustaining grace of God is. I think of the line from Amazing Grace that says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And, and, and this is what they understood. Man, the Lord sent us out, and it was only by the grace of God that he kept us alive, that he sustained us, that he helped us. It was by the grace of God, the keeping power of the grace of God. Perhaps this morning, you are honestly even wondering how you're going to complete some difficult task in front of you. Can I give you the answer? By the grace of God. Maybe you're looking at something in front of you. I don't know how. I'm just, I don't know how I'm going to make it through that. I don't know how I'm going to handle that. By the grace of God. By the grace of God, by the God of all grace, who will help you and keep you and strengthen you, he commends you by his grace to go out and he'll help you to complete whatever work is set before you. Well, verse 27 then concludes saying, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported that all God had done with them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they stayed there with the disciples for a long time. So arriving back at their home church, verse 27 gives us now this reference that they stood there for a long time afterwards, but when they first got there, what did they do? It says they gave report of what happened out on the mission field. I like this. Here's a biblical precedent for giving report to one's home church after you go serve on a missions trip or after you've been out on the mission field for an extended period of time. It says they gathered the church together. They begin to report all that God had done with them. And I like the combination there. Verse 26 says that there was a work that they had completed and verse 27 says they told them what God had done with them. You see the partnership? They were doing the work, laboring, ministering, serving, but notice when they gave testimony, they gave all the credit to God. They said, we did the work, but God did everything through us. It was what God completed through us, how God used us. I, I like this picture here, giving all the glory to God. When they reported, they said, let us tell you what God's done. Not what we went and did. Let, let us tell you what God did. What God did just through us by making ourselves available. Imagine hearing those reports. How inspiring to hear the stories on the mission field and the things that happened in ministry. They also reported how it was God, it says, who opened the door of faith to the Gentile people. As they reported, they were giving testimony how God divinely opened unique doors of opportunity for ministry to the Gentile or non-Jewish people. And Paul and Barnabas firmly felt 
convicted that all the credit went to God for that, for opening the doors of opportunity. They said, look, it was God, the hand of God that orchestrated these circumstances that opened up doorways of opportunity to share the gospel with these Gentile people. It was the favor of God that caused them to be receptive when we shared the word of God. It was the hand of God and the power of the spirit that caused them opening their hearts and opening the door to be responsive and accept Christ and be saved. And as they looked at all that happened, they said it was the work of the Lord that brought about these open doors. And how encouraging to know that the Lord hasn't changed. He can still open doors. And we should pray for those things. We should pray for open doors. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. We should be praying for that all the time. Lord, open a door for me. Open doors for me that I might be effective and you can use me to accomplish your works in different ways. Look, though it's very evident from the text, God is guiding their steps, right? God's opening doors. God's doing things through their lives that are wonderful, but circumstances were still challenging from time to time. And they had to not grow weary in doing good. They had to be willing to endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ because then on the other side, they could then look back and say, look what God did. Look what God did because we stood at it. Look what God was able to accomplish. And what's more, listen, heaven was rejoicing about what God did that those servants never saw. And the things that happened in ways as a result of what they did that heaven saw unfold and heaven was saying, wow, when he gets here, we can also tell him that happened in Iconium and that happened in Lystra and that happened in Antioch all because of what he just came and did here. And what a wonderful thing to be able to rejoice. Folks, only heaven will reveal all that God has done through your willingness to be faithful, despite how hard it is. Would you stand with me and let's pray together.